I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest, a returning guest, is Dr. Aaron Cariotti. He is a psychiatrist and director of the program in Bioethics and American Democracy here at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He directs the Health and Human Flourishing Program at the Zephyr Institute. He formerly taught psychiatry at the UCI School of Medicine and was the director of the Medical Ethics Program at UCI Health and chair of the Ethics Committee at the California Department of State Hospitals. He blogs at aaroncariotti.substack.com and has written for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Public Discourse, and others. He is the recent author of the book, The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. Aaron, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be with you, Aaron. Let's start with what I think is probably the most basic premise of the book, that the job of the physician has shifted from treating the individual patient to people as a whole. Why does this matter to us? And how, do you, how did you see this kind of manifest in our COVID-19 pandemic policies? Yeah, so you're right. That's a basic underlying premise of my book. And that's a change of course for medicine that looks subtle in the beginning. But you know, if the ship is not oriented in the right direction when it sets off on a journey, as it travels further and further, on the, the slightly wrong course, it gets further and further from its destination. So even a subtle change at the beginning or in the foundations of medicine can produce, I think, significant, significant results. And traditionally, the Hippocratic paradigm for ethics said that the physician's primary, and one might argue even exclusive responsibility, is to the sick individual patient who comes to the physician for care, who is made vulnerable by illness, who therefore has to trust the doctor's, not only the doctor's knowledge and skill, but the doctor's good intentions to take that knowledge and skill and place it in the service of the health, health and healing of the patient, to do everything in the doctor's power, to minimize harms, to do everything in the doctor's power, to aim at health and healing for the patient. The doctor cannot be an agent of a larger social program. The doctor cannot be an agent of the state or the, the agent of some larger, quote unquote, greater good, even if that social program is a worthy one. And the reason is patients have to trust physicians, patients who are vulnerable because of illness and have to subject themselves to things in a medical context that may be uncomfortable or even dangerous, will not do that, cannot do that, if they don't trust that the doctor's primary responsibility is to the patient. And I think what we saw, particularly during the pandemic, when you could say medicine was subsumed by public health, is that institutional medicine and even individual physicians were in many cases suborned to serve larger social programs that didn't necessarily put the patient's good as the, as the primary paramount concern of the physician. So one example of that, so we decided at the outset of COVID that we were going to protect institutions rather than protecting individual patients. We were going to take an approach in hospitals to protect hospital beds. So that was the origin, for example, of the disastrous policy that we saw in New York and a couple of other states where COVID positive patients were transferred into nursing homes and nursing homes were forced to take patients infected with COVID. And that led to a disproportionate number of unnecessary deaths in that nursing home context, precisely because those were the patients who were most vulnerable to bad outcomes with this particular virus. And so rather than taking a focused protection approach where we said, who's most vulnerable to bad outcomes from this virus, let's do everything we can to protect them. We said, let's free up hospital beds in case we get more COVID cases because we don't want to become overwhelmed. And in the interest of the institution, let's do whatever it takes, even if it leads to more morbidity and mortality for that particular population. As long as our hospital is okay, we're not going to worry about the people in that nursing home. That's some other that's some some other person's problem. 
Another example early on in the pandemic where this shift occurred is that we decided to, in a, in a failed attempt to control contagion within hospitals, we prematurely intubated patients that may have been able to stay off a ventilator, may be able to have managed with supportive care only. And the reason that we prematurely intubated them was not to protect those patients or not because that was going to lead to better outcomes for those patients who were intubated, but because we believed that we could reduce the risk of contagion to hospital staff if we had COVID positive patients on ventilators. Well, we now know that that led to much higher rates of mortality. Once we got a COVID patient on a ventilator, it was very, very difficult to get that patient off a ventilator. So again, that was an example of, in this case, protecting hospital staff from infection rather than taking our knowledge and skills and putting them in the service of doing what was best to the patient, even if that introduced some degree of risk to the hospital staff. I mean, medicine and nursing have always been characterized by a willingness, especially during an epidemic or a pandemic, to assume some, some degree of risk of contagion in order to treat the sick. This is this is an occupational hazard of medicine. This is something that people should understand they are signing on for if they want to become a physician. It's like if you want to become a firefighter, you're going to run into burning buildings to try to get people out. And that will introduce some degree of risk. You're probably eventually going to develop lung problems from smoke inhalation. And that's an occupational hazard of this job. But the the job and what we're aiming at is so worthy that people can voluntarily choose to take on a heroic profession like that in order to, you know, some degree of self-sacrifice in order to try to help other patients, other people in the case of, of a firefighter. We do everything we can to, you know, give you adequate equipment, whether it's PPE in a hospital or fire retardant equipment as a firefighter. You know, so we don't take reckless or unnecessary risks, but it comes with the territory that, you know, we're primarily here about helping other people and not about protecting ourselves. The, I could go through more examples of, of this during COVID, but the most egregious example of this actually happened back in the 1930s in Germany. And of course, anytime you draw an analogy to the Nazis, people naturally recoil. So I'm, I'm not comparing our COVID policies. I'm not comparing the current or the previous administration to Hitler's Nazi regime. No, but I'm, I'm using this as an example to show how medicine started off on this wrong course and then ended up way off course once they went down that, that path uh, far enough. And what happened in Germany is this idea took hold even before the Nazis came to power back in the 1920s and 1930s, this idea took hold in German medicine that it was the job of German medicine not to treat the individual patient, but to attend to the health of the population as a whole, the, the health of the Volk. The German people was seen using this metaphor of, of a social organism. And the doctor's job was the health of the social organism or the body politic or the people as a whole. Well, <clears throat> that metaphor would suggest things like uh, if there is a cancer on the body politic, if there are individual members of society who are a drain on uh, the economic resources or a drain on the social strength because of disability or because of impairment or because of severe illness, what do you do with a cancer if you're a physician? You carve it out in order to improve the health of the organism as a whole. And so that logic eventually led to involuntary sterilization, eugenic sterilization, copying a model that had already been piloted in the United States, and then taking it a step further than what we saw in the United States with eugenics, which was the involuntary euthanasia program, the so-called T4 euthanasia program in Germany in the, 19, uh, in the late 1930s. And so the first individuals, this is a historical fact that most people aren't aware of, the first individuals who were gassed, who were killed in gas chambers 
in Nazi Germany were not the Jews in concentration camps. That that came later. The first individuals who were gassed were disabled individuals, mostly mentally disabled, cognitively disabled individuals, mentally ill individuals. And they were gassed in hospitals. And all of those deaths were signed off on by physicians, mostly psychiatrists in Germany at the time. So all of this obviously prepared the way for the mass scale horrors of the so-called final solution and the Holocaust and the, the persecution of uh, Jews and other ethnic minorities during the war. But it's important to remember how intimately entwined with that whole operation medicine was. German medicine, the best in the world at the time, the most advanced medical institutions and medical schools in the world at the time, made that subtle shift. And then over the course of 10, 15 years, went very far down that path. And then it was easy once uh, the Nazi regime sort of took over to take this now misdirected profession and suborn them into uh, cooperation with, with really horrible things. Half of all physicians in Germany uh, were Nazis. They joined the Nazi party. It was not required for membership in the profession of medicine. It could help you advance academically or uh, what have you, but it was not required. And you can compare that to the fact that only 10% of teachers in Germany joined the Nazi party. So it's, it's really important uh, to ask the question, why? What went wrong? What had gone wrong with medicine already in Germany when the Nazis came to power that, that created the conditions for the entire profession really to, to go off the rails in, uh, in ways that were utterly disastrous. Very interesting. I, and I, you know, we see this, this kind of widening of the role of the medical professional, the physician, the doctor um, in so many different areas. And you touch on some of these in your book. You know, obviously racism has sort of had this renewed, there's been this renewed consciousness of it and its harms, um, leading to a lot of sort of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And similarly with kind of global warming or climate change, there's a renewed interest or emphasis on that. The, the, the I guess, most prominent example during the pandemic was protests were allowed in the midst of all this when other gatherings were forbidden because we were told that racism was part of fighting the pandemic, part of a medical problem. How, how does this tie into the biomedical security state? Why is reframing these issues as public health or medical issues a problem? So w what I call in the subtitle of the book, the biomedical security state requires, this is a, this is a, a regime and apparatus that requires really jumping from one declared emergency to the next in order for individuals who accrue power during emergencies to maintain that power. So during a declared state of emergency, which we're still operating under at a federal level, Congress recently voted overwhelmingly to end the state of emergency at the federal level. But Congress doesn't actually have the power. So this was largely symbolic. Congress doesn't actually have the power to end the state of emergency. The executive branch and the, the, the basically the Secretary of the Health and Human Services Department, Javier Becerra, has the power to end the state of emergency with the endorsement of the president. But one of the problems with this is that it's the president and the executive branch that gains the additional powers during a declared state of emergency. And as we know, people who um, gain additional powers are reluctant to voluntarily give them up. So the, the president gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers during a federal state of emergency. Many of those he can delegate to unelected bureaucrats um, that, he, that he appoints. And he also gains power to emergency funding. Basically, Congress holds the purse strings, right, for the federal budget. You have to go to them for allocations of money. But during a state of emergency, the president has a kind of slush fund options that, that allow him to spend more money without the approval of Congress. So uh, 
So there's there's an incentive on the part of executives. This goes for governors as well. We're still operating under a state of emergency in my home state of California. Once an emergency is over, those powers will have to be relinquished unless there's another emergency that we can latch onto. So immediately when it started beco- becoming implausible to consider COVID an ongoing crisis or an ongoing emergency, we saw efforts to create other potential threats to justify the maintenance of emergency powers. So we saw this with the monkeypox scare. And then there was the triple-demic scare. We were, we were going to have COVID and the flu. And I forget what the third one was. might have been RSV. It was going to be this sort of dark winter of, of contagion. That didn't happen. It was a pretty mild winter when it came to uh, influenza and COVID, actually. So, uh, but we saw this. We saw this happening even during the pandemic, as you mentioned, during the BLM public protests, where there were these mass gatherings during lockdowns, and a lot of people were scratching their head, wondering how come tens of thousands of people can gather in the streets together when we're supposed to be staying at home and maintaining social distancing and so forth. And twelve hundred public health uh, experts, so-called experts, signed a public letter saying that racism was a public health emergency. And I guess in the hierarchy, the intersectional hierarchy of public health emergencies, that was able to trump the, at least temporarily, the COVID emergency and justify or permit on supposedly on public health grounds, these mass protests during social a period when everyone else was expected to be socially distanced. We've also seen efforts to reframe issues besides racism as public health issues. You mentioned climate change. And even prior to the pandemic, if you look at how climate change has been framed in the last five to six years, the framing of climate change has shifted from characterizing it primarily as an ecological issue or an environmental issue. It's about sort of polluting the world out there and the problems that that will create to reframing it as a public health issue. And and if you just read the headlines on climate change, bracketing for a moment, what what are your views on climate change or climate change policy? What do you think we, we ought to do about it? It has been reframed primarily in terms of harms to population health, right? And I think that is setting the stage for declaring it not just a public health issue, but a public health crisis for which emergency powers are necessary. And during the very first lockdowns, I think this was by by April of 2020, there were serious academics, Ivy League academics, politicians in power around the world, talking about how we were going to need to use rolling lockdowns to deal with the climate crisis. So, you know, we hadn't even gotten through the COVID crisis when people in power were seeing, gosh, we were able to roll this out and people responded and people obeyed these stay-at-home orders. And this is a powerful social tool to address other social issues or to maintain control over a population or whatever their motivation was. And one of the problems with reframing all of these issues as public health issues is, first of all, they're not public health issues. And this this gives undue power to people who can claim public health expertise and undue influence to try to resolve these social problems. But it also disempowers individuals in a democratic society because, you know, if racism is characterized as a public health issue, then you need the ministrations of experts to tell us what to do about it, right? If it's characterized as primarily a moral issue, um, as uh, as it has been traditionally, or a religious issue, as it was, you know, during the civil rights movement, or even as um, a small scale, small eye institutional problem that can be dealt with at the level of, you know, the family or the small business or the local community. Those framings of the issue basically help people understand. The problem of racism is everyone's responsibility, and all of us have to be a part of coming up with solutions to this problem. Whereas if racism or climate change or whatever the other social or political issue you want to reframe as a public health issue, 
if 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 it's reframed in those terms, then only the experts can sort of tell us what to do about it. And individual citizens are are kind of disempowered and in no position to say whether this or that policy to try to address the problem is justified. Yeah. And and just some statistics that you kind of cite in the book to bolster that point. So in 1978, approximately 30 countries were operating under a state of emergency. This was 70 in 1986. And then in response to COVID, 124 in 2020. And then as of February 2020, there were 32 active national emergencies in the United States. The oldest one was dating back 39 years, and each was renewed by presence from both parties. So is this, it seems like this is something that has been sort of building over time that we're just now noticing, or do you think this happened very suddenly that we kind of like there was some tipping point or something? So I, I think it's both. I think since World War II, we've seen this gradual accrual of the use of the state of emergency or what the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben calls the state of exception by governments in order to advance certain aims, in order to gain or maintain certain uh, emergency powers. And then those those emergencies kind of maintain an inertia of their own. And for whatever reason, probably having a lot to do with what I mentioned earlier, people not wanting to voluntarily relinquish power, those those emergencies are just sort of renewed, right? I don't want to let go of that slush fund, or it's nice to have that option in my back pocket. You know, if uh, if this really becomes a problem again, then, you know, I, I as the governor, I as the president can quickly do something about it. So you don't necessarily have to you don't necessarily have to attribute sort of power hungry uh, motives or uh, uh, you know negative intentions, bad intentions to uh, to this problem. I think it's probably more of an institutional problem than a problem of individuals in power and problem of governance. But regardless of the reasons why, more and more of these states of emergency have have piled up in Western countries, and then. COVID came. And I think that was a tipping point that massively accelerated this process and also justified policies under the state of emergency that were unimaginable in the past, right? So lockdowns were something that had been, this is an idea that had been floated as early as probably 2001 following 9-11 as a way of, of controlling populations during a crisis. But the world had more or less rejected that as a, as a way of dealing with pandemics or epidemics. And it wasn't really embraced until COVID. The, the, pre, the pre-COVID pandemic planning documents of the WHO, of the CDC, had rejected lockdowns or so-called stay-at-home orders as an option. But then we embraced it during COVID, and now it's become part of a new normal or a new abnormal, uh, as I characterize it in the title of the book. And, uh, and so co- uh, the COVID was a tipping point, not in the sense of declaring a state of emergency or even maintaining a state of emergency longer than was necessary, but in terms of just the, the, the gravity and the, and the serious kind of infringements that many of the policies under the state of emergency advanced, right? Force mass vaccination for competent adults, bypassing the process of informed consent for competent adults, vaccine passports that required, you know, a QR code demonstrating that I had done what the public health authorities told me to do in order to travel, in order to go to a public event. You know, these mechanisms of surveillance and control uh, had never been tried before, at least at this level. COVID was the first pandemic of the the digital age. Right? The iPhone was invented in 2007. So this was the first sort of major public health crisis where that tool could be deployed to monitor populations at a very granular level and, and you know, to, to uh, 
to basically combine a public health apparatus with digital technologies of surveillance and control in ways that were you know, previously not possible simply because we didn't have the technology to do that. Let's talk about us, we the people. You know, you tell one story about a dean at Georgetown who told law students, 98% of whom were vaccinated, that they could not remove their masks in class to drink water. And there were many, many pronouncements like these on college campuses, society at large, either unnecessarily restrictive or making exceptions for, for quite a few things that didn't quite make sense. In other words, there were glaring inconsistencies in the way administrators and governments, schools, public health organizations handled pandemic policies. What motivates us as human beings not to stop and question these inconsistencies, press for an explanation, expect an explanation? I don't want to medicalize this too much, but like as a psychiatrist, how do you look at this dilemma? So fear played a big role. There was a there was a myth advanced early on in the pandemic that COVID could spread asymptomatically from, from individuals that didn't have any symptoms. We learned very quickly that asymptomatic spread was not a primary driver of the pandemic and was probably pretty exceptionally rare to, to acquire COVID from someone who had no symptoms. But that the specter of asymptomatic spread basically turned every other person into a potential threat to my existence, literally. Right. Even if they don't look dangerous, they still could be dangerous. And that creates a, a state of fear and anxiety that is really intolerable, intolerable for human beings. I mean, who can who can live under those conditions for weeks or months or, or years? And so in a I think in a failed attempt to try to control and manage that anxiety, um, we we gave to people certain interventions that gave them some sense of agency and control, right? So I have this invisible pathogen that I can't see, can be characterized, can be carried by any individual, whether or not they look sick. It might even be lurking on surfaces of things that people touch, right? But if I scrub those surfaces, if I wear a mask and do it just right, and if everyone else follows these rules, maybe we're all going to be a little bit safer. Maybe I can regain some sense of agency and control. Maybe I can manage some of this intolerable, pervasive, free-floating anxiety that th this situation has created in me. And then people in power, and even people with a little bit of power, the dean of a, a law school who you know has people sort of under his authority, are driven by, I think, those considerations, but they're also they they were also driven by risk management consideration. I think we underestimate the degree to which lawyers were trying to outcompete one another. Risk management types were trying to outcompete one another to make sure that the rules of this institution, whether it's a business or a, a school, are at least as restrictive, if not more restrictive than any other institutions, because then if we're ever accused of putting someone at risk, we can say, no, we did everything we could to try to minimize that risk. So this, this unspoken notion took hold also that individuals or institutions could be held responsible for someone else getting sick from a highly contagious respiratory virus that was so contagious that nothing we could have done would stop its spread. I mean, Omicron uh, was was a virus that was, you know, a variant that was impossible to stop. Uh, and yet we believed that somehow if we did everything right, we could stop the spread of this contagion. So this misplaced sense of responsibility, uh, a, a responsibility that we grossly foisted even on children, right? Don't kiss grandma or she might get sick and die, right? This is a terrible thing to say to a child, right? This is a, this is a form of emotional abuse, in my opinion. And so you get the lawyers and the risk management types in there saying, um, you know, we need not only the most rigid rules, but we need the most rigid level of enforcement to make sure everyone follows the rules so that no one can ever accuse us of not doing enough to quote unquote, keep them safe. That created a, a really 
kind of toxic conditions in which there was this mimetic race to the bottom when it came to COVID policy at the level of small-scale institutions. Hmm. Uh, you know, this sort of nicely segues into the last chapter of the book, though this is not the last question, which is sort of a dystopian look at future life under a biomedical security state, combines a reliance on you know, anti-anxiety medications, the illusory comforts of technology, the overweening power of, of state monitoring through technology. And throughout the book, you bring up George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Orwell's 1984, as our listeners probably know, consists of a state with complete and utter control of the flow of information and the constant presence of the state in one's own home and in the streets. You know, Big Brother is watching you. And Brave New World, on the other hand, is about control through pleasure, through you know medication or reliance on drugs and sex. And I'm, I'm reminded that Huxley actually taught Orwell French at Eton. And Orwell asked his publisher to send a copy of 1984 to Huxley when it came out in 1949. I did not know that. That is that's a fascinating little tidbit. Huh. Really interesting. And and Orwell had already read Huxley's famous novel novel and and commented on it in a short essay. And he said, Mr. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World was a good character caricature of the hedonistic utopia the kind of thing that seemed possible and even imminent before Hitler appeared. But it had no relation to the actual future. What we are moving towards at this moment is something more like the Spanish Inquisition and probably far worse, thanks to the radio and the secret police. So do you think we're moving towards one version, you know, Orwell's version or Huxley's version, or, or do you see a possible future as combining both of these nightmarish scenarios? That's a great question. And prior to the COVID pandemic, I would have said our society is tilting in the direction of Huxley, a kind of kind of soft totalitarianism or a kind of squishy dystopia where, uh, you know, through, through drugs and hedonistic sort of recreations, the, the population is kept more or less placid and distracted and content, but in a way that's sort of dehumanizing. And it seemed like Huxley had had gotten the better of a, a sort of look toward the future and what things, and at least in Western democratic societies, were going to look like. But I think, I think Orwell and his vision took some big leaps forward <laughs> during COVID because we had mass surveillance. We had the CDC monitoring cell phone data without Americans' knowledge or consent. Uh, this was also done by the Canadian Public Health Agency, uh, monitoring cell phone data to see how people were complying or not complying with stay-at-home orders. So how many people were gathering at a school, how many people were gathering at a church. So we had, we had mass surveillance. We had authoritarian policies that were increasingly intrusive down to the level of, you know, pull your mask up two centimeters because it's it slipped down your nose just a little too much, right? And if you don't, I'm going to kick you out of this classroom and you're, you know, you're going to be in trouble. So, and we, ha we had a, a more of a police state model. So the biomedical security state is an increasingly militarized public health apparatus combined with digital technologies of surveillance and control backed up by the police powers of the state. And so we had in Canada, for example, Justin Trudeau, in order to deal with the truckers' protest in Ottawa, rather than meeting with the truckers and trying to listen to their concerns and attempting to negotiate with them, he invoked the Emergencies Act for the first time in Canadian history, which not only allowed him to forcibly remove the truckers from Ottawa using a basically militarized police force, but with the cooperation of banks, he also froze the bank accounts of the truckers and even of people who had given money to the Freedom Convoy. So, you know, imagine giving 50 bucks to this, this grassroots mass movement one day and going to the ATM the next day and you can't take money out of your checking account because the government has frozen it. That is very Orwellian, right? Um, that's, that's the deployment of the police powers of the state. Uh, in, in ways that we haven't seen before in Western democratic 
society. So I think what we have now is, as you sort of alluded to, is a very bad combination of, of both dystopian visions and my epilogue, uh, Seattle 2030, which is my own personal favorite part of the book, um, is, I think, a, a blend of both of those visions. What I try to do in that epilogue is, first of all, I put it in the not too distant future. You know, if it was Seattle 2050, that feels very far away. You know, it's hard for people to sort of imagine their lives 25 years from now. But seven, eight years from now, yeah, okay. That's, you know, that's kind of right around the corner. And I didn't introduce any novel technologies there, unlike Huxley, who imagined things that actually we can now do, but that couldn't be done at that time. All of the technologies in uh, Seattle 2030 are already available. They just haven't been rolled out and embraced on a, on a mass scale yet. So things like central bank digital currencies, digital IDs tied to biometric data, these things are all now available and sort of ready for use. They just, and we're starting to see them, starting to see a trial balloon. You know, the feds, the feds announced the use of a digital dollar and, you know, that the authorities are putting feelers out to see how these things can be, can be implemented. If we embrace them, if we adopt them, if we move in the direction of a cashless society where a centrally controlled digital currency is basically the only way to engage in financial transactions, this is what life might look like. And the first half of the epilogue, actually things don't look too bad because I, I also wanted to give the impression that these things are not going to be sold as please you know, adopt this, this novel thing that's going to give us increasing control over your life. But this will help with frictionless travel and frictionless exchanges, and they're going to be sold on the basis of convenience. And so, you know, the first part of the epilogue, you're looking at the, the life of this software engineer in Seattle, and you're thinking, wow, okay, that doesn't sound so bad. And, you know, this, this, this new way of doing things sounds like um, it's got its advantages. But then you begin to see some flies in the ointment. You start noticing, well, okay, maybe not everyone in society is benefiting from uh, this regime or this way of doing things. And then hopefully by, by the end, without giving away the punchline, you'll recognize, okay, no, there are serious problems with going down this path. And we should, you know, we should definitely step back and think twice before we enthusiastically embrace or just sort of passively accept the, the, the rollout of these new mechanisms of surveillance and control. A large portion of your book concerns scientism, or the faith in science as a closed and exclusionary belief system. Can, can you explain to us what scientism is and, and why it's such a profound problem? So scientism, as opposed to science, is a ideology that says that science is the only valid form of knowledge. That premise that science is the only valid form of knowledge is not scientific and cannot be proven empirically. So it sort of contradicts itself. So scientism has to hide that inconvenient fact from itself. So it's rarely stated that explicitly. It's more, it's more sort of assumed and advanced through dismissing any moral or metaphysical or religious claims as illegitimate in the public square because they're not scientific or they're not empirically provable. So scientism tends to advance by way of slander <laughs> in some cases and exclusion in other cases, censorship and the promise of future happiness, which is the way all utopian ideologies tend to tend to advance. Scientism also allows those in power to choose and to, to endorse which scientific experts they're going to listen to and advance. And then supposedly, since science is an unassailable oracle of truth, those experts become a kind of unassailable oracle of truth. So none of this is scientific. Science itself is a set of methods for inquiring about the workings of, of nature and the natural world. Science is an open-ended enterprise that relies on conjecture and refutation and hypothesis and uh, testing. And a good scientist maintains an openness to the possibility that any one or another conclusion of science may be wrong or incomplete or off base in some way. So science creates kind of 
warranted humility about our conclusions. And scientism creates a kind of unwarranted certainty about conclusions. And ultimately, scientism is, you, you, could, you could characterize it as the totalitarian conception of science because it attempts to monopolize what counts as knowledge, which is what you see in all totalitarian regimes. All totalitarian ideologies attempt to monopolize what counts as rationality or what counts as legitimate public opinion, right? So if you're living in a communist society and you start raising questions about communist doctrine, the dyed-in-the-wool sort of communist ideologue is not going to debate you. He's not going to argue with you. He's not going to explain you know, why your premises or why your conclusion is wrong. He's going to say, you're just infected by bourgeois consciousness. Or, you know, if he's a Nazi, you're just infected by Jew consciousness. You, you know, you have these ideas because of class interests or because of, you know, race-based interest or, or what have you. Therefore, I don't need to debate you. You don't understand the direction of history. You're on the wrong side of history. I can set you aside and ignore you, or if you continue to be a pest, I can steamroll you because the train is not moving in your, your direction. And you either get on the board the train or, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna run over you. So the, the common feature of all totalitarian systems, as the political theorist Eric Vogelin pointed out, is not mass surveillance or concentration camps or secret police, you know, men in jackboots, as horrible as all those things are. He said, the common feature of all totalitarian systems is the prohibition of questions, the inability to ask questions, the inability to question conclusions of the party or conclusions of the science that are held out as unassailable. That's where totalitarianism always begins. And that is the central feature of all totalitarian systems. And in fact, as totalitarian systems advance, Hannah Arendt pointed this out, as they advance, those mechanisms I described earlier, the secret police, the mass surveillance, become less and less necessary. Why? Well, because people who live in that society for long enough tend to internalize the totalitarian ideology. You don't need mass surveillance because the population begins to enforce the ideology themselves. They inform on one another. Ch children inform on their parents and parents inform on their children to maintain the rigid orthodoxy. And ultimately, at the end of that road, once the ideology has been sufficiently internalized by a sufficient number of people, the prohibition of questions is such that those questions no longer occur to people. And so you don't need external constraints because the, the constraints are, are in, in the minds of the individuals living in that totalitarian society. When the questions no longer occur to people, the totalitarian system has sort of completed itself. So dictatorships rule externally through force and fear and threat of punishment. And totalitarian systems need to use those mechanisms initially. But the ultimate goal is that those mechanisms become less and less necessary because the prohibition of questions becomes a feature of people's mental life. And one of the things that I try to describing the book is the way in which through the control of the flow of information, through censorship on a level that we've never seen before, especially online, certain questions were forbidden. And if you ask those questions, you were you didn't you didn't get a you didn't get a reasoned debate. You got you you got you were called names. Right? You, you were accused of wanting to kill grandma, right? Are these lockdowns really necessary? Are the harms from school closures outweighing any potential benefits? If you ask those questions, you could lose your job, right? Look at the case of Jennifer Say, who was a next in line to be CEO at Levi's company. She lost her job for questioning whether schools should remain closed. That's really insane. Right. And what's really ironic is now it's really hard to find someone who will defend school closures anymore. It's becoming harder to find people that will defend lockdowns anymore. But there's still some holdouts who think that the lockdowns were justified. But almost no one any longer will publicly defend 
school closures. She lost her job two years ago for saying things that today have become conventional wisdom, right? I lost my job for saying that natural immunity was as good as vaccine immunity, which now the CDC has, has endorsed and everyone knows that that's true, right? But that was a prohibited question at the time when I raised it back in 2021. So we embraced this kind of totalitarian conception of science and science was weaponized to enforce social con conformity, which was not scientific. It was it was perfect example of this ideology of scientism. Yeah, I mean, the other example that has been in the news lately is the question of the origin of the pandemic itself. Right. You know, we, it was you know, forbidden to say that the lab leak was a possibility. And now we have, you know, multiple government institutions saying that it was most likely a lab leak. I mean, it's, it's wild to see this play out over a few years, really kind of crazy. Yeah. The only difference between a conspiracy theory and conventional wisdom now is about, you know, nine to 12 months, depending <laughs> on the theory. Uh, just, just wait. And uh, it won't, it won't seem so tinfoil hat, you know, a year from now. You know, one, one salient point in all of this is the close relationship between uh, pharma, medical research, government, and you write in the book, most biomedical research is paid for by pharmaceutical companies. The New England Journal of Medicine found that 82% of their 73 published studies of new drugs in one year had been funded by the pharmaceutical companies selling the drug. More than two-thirds of studies had authors who were employees of the respected, respective pharmaceutical company, and half the studies had lead research, researchers who accepted money from the drug company. Furthermore, a 2017 report in the British Medical Journal showed that about half of medical journal editors receive payments from drug companies, with the average payment around $28,000. The investigation found 80% of study authors failed to disclose pharma payments totaling millions of dollars. That is kind of shocking to read. And you know, I also have to say, just because pharma is involved in funding does not mean that the the study conclusions are wrong or bad science or fatuous in their conclusions. But these ties need to be openly disclosed. And it means that, yes, there is the possibility of significant bias in the science and the methodology and the data, and it needs to be examined very closely. It also means that if people have doubts about the veracity of the research, they ought not be dismissed. But our system is set up such that there is, as you put it, a revolving door, creating a small coterie of mutual back scratchers moving seamlessly from government to industry and back. How do you see this being addressed? Or how do you see us kind of fixing the problem? So that's a, that's a really important question. Disclosure and transparency are important, but there are some other mechanisms that need to be in place to help maintain the honesty and integrity of biomedical research. And I, one of the areas that I looked at in the book was when it comes to vaccines, the, the, the consumer protection mechanism of liability has been removed from pharmaceutical companies. And I think this is a, this is a big problem that changes the way in which pharmaceutical companies do clinical trials of vaccines. Pharmaceutical companies are very good at running clinical trials. They know how to do them and they know how to do them well, and they will do them well when they have to. But when they don't have to, they might cut corners or they might spin the data a little bit in their, in their favor. So if Pfizer develops a new drug for COVID or anything else, it's very likely going to run a robust clinical trial that has pretty good efficacy data and very good safety data. Why are they why are they going to do a good job of testing for safety? Well, they don't want another Vioxx on their hand. They don't they don't want another case where they they miss some things in the clinical trials that are potentially serious side effects and then are held liable for billions of dollars later when once those harms become apparent after the drug has been approved and rolled out and given to a population. So as much as, you know, doctors and scientific researchers might not like lawyers um, and might not like class action lawsuits, 
those are one of the things that keeps manufacturing companies producing consumer products, including pharmaceutical products, one of the things that keeps them honest, right? But what we did with vaccines is Congress decided a couple of decades ago that uh, the companies would no longer be liable for harms from vaccines. So they created this sort of weird carve out where you could not sue a pharmaceutical company if you were injured or harmed by a vaccine the way you could sue them if you were injured or harmed by a, a drug uh, that was not adequately tested or, you know, who, who which had safety issues that the company may, may have known about <clears throat> or seen evidence of, but not disclosed to the public. And I think this creates a, this created a very serious problem when it comes to, uh, when it comes to vaccines. And so removing that liability shield, I think would go a long way to immediately creating more robust and careful research when it comes to vaccines. So that's one of the things that could be done. Uh, the, the problem of scientific journals and, you know, most of their funding coming from advertising dollars from pharmaceutical companies, I think that needs to be addressed at the level of, you know, thinking through how publication works, how the peer review process works. So I advocate in the last chapter for some policy reforms that could in include things like, um, you know, rather than having a few journals that are considered the most prestigious, many of which published garbage science during the pandemic. I mean, The Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine uh, are prime examples of journals who clearly were compromised and clearly published things that should not have been published during the pandemic. Uh, why not have universities um, basically publish the research of the researchers at their institution. Um, maybe, you know, you could consider that the University of California's journal, or you could just have, have a portal at the University of California where research was published. I advocate for an open peer review process where the peer reviewer puts his or her name on the review and uh, doesn't necessarily act as a gatekeeper for publication. Uh, but can post uh, comments or critiques of a paper um, online. I think uh, I think that will remove the uh, the strange incentives that exist to uh, basically protect my own pet theory from challenge by other scientists or by young upstarts because I will have to disclose transparently transparently who I am and why I think this paper is is wrong. And people will be able to see that I might have my own interests at stake in that critique as well, because the paper challenge is something that I put forward two years ago in my in my own paper. And I think good research will tend to rise to the top. Good research will be cited, good research will be replicated. Um, and bad research will quite quickly be forgotten and, and buried. And so I think there are things that can be done to disentangle the publication enterprise from uh, the need to seek funding from corporations that have their own interests, in this case, pharmaceutical companies. The United States is also one of the only countries in the world, New, Ze New Zealand is the only other country that allows direct consumer advertising of pharmaceutical products. Ask your doctor about, you know, Viagra commercials on TV. Most people from other countries see those commercials and they think that Americans are insane. <laughs> and then actually prior to, I think it was 1997, um, the, that kind of advertising was forbidden by federal law. What that advertising has done is created a system in which news media companies get very large um, advertising contracts with pharmaceutical companies, and that can potentially have um, can, can bias their news reporting and, and you know undermine their ability to really sort of be objective and feature stories that might be critical of uh, the interests of, of people who are paying them a lot of money for advertising revenues. We, we've seen this weird phenomenon during COVID of, for example, Pfizer advertising. We're not even sure what they're advertising. Um, 
there are treatments for COVID out there. If you have COVID, ask your doctor about COVID treatments, right? And it's sort of, they never mention a vaccine or they never mention a medication for COVID. What's going on here? Well, if they if they mention a vaccine, well, they can't men- mention a vaccine because they're under emergency use authorization and they can't be advertised. Or if they do mention the vaccine, then they have to talk about side effects, right? They have to do the the, the rapid speech at the end where they list, you know, potential adverse effects. Um, but also one of the reasons that they run those ads is simply to continue giving NBC and Fox and the New York Times money, right? Just to keep the gravy train going because they know that that's going to influence those media companies if they're getting a lot of Pfizer dollars. So Pfizer's flush with cash now. The vaccines were a $100 billion industry in their first year alone. And there's a kind of payout system to all the organs of information uh, out there that they don't even care anymore whether they're mentioning their product in the advertising. What they care about is giving money to these organizations on an ongoing basis to kind of keep these organizations in their corner. So this this is a recipe for problems. This is a recipe for the corruption of um, of, of the means of communication and the means of information sharing in the United States. And then that's not even to mention the entanglements with government. So the NIH co-owns the patent on the Moderna vaccine. So they're getting revenue from the Moderna vaccine. So taxpayers funded the research for the Moderna vaccine. The taxpayers are now potentially on the hook for defending Moderna against lawsuits. So I saw a story recently, the the headline was federal government is is looking to bail out Moderna. And you, you might wonder, why does Moderna need a bailout? They made a boatload of money on their on their first successful product. Well, the bailout has to do with, uh, it, I don't know if there's any merits to this lawsuit or not, but somebody is suing Moderna for patent infringement saying, you know, you stole some intellectual property from us in the making of this vaccine. And so you owe us a lot of money for that. And rather than having to, to defend themselves against that lawsuit or pay out that claim, if, if the court decides that there's merit to that claim, the federal government is stepping in and you know, attempting to defend Moderna against that particular lawsuit and that particular claim. Why are the taxpayers not only enriching this company by doing their research and development for them, and, and also by you know, policies that basically mandate that taxpayers take the product, but now when there's product liability issues or corporate liability issues, why are taxpayers uh, stepping in to defend the company against you know possible violations of intellectual property law so these kind of public private entanglements i think are another way in which the agencies that are meant to regulate these industries become captured by the industries that they are supposed to be regulating so there there needs to be more robust policies i have several suggestions in the last chapter of the book more policies in place to try to disentangle the federal agencies that are meant to regulate the pharmaceutical industry from the industry that they're supposed to be regulating so that this problem of industry capture is is at least minimized. It probably can't be eradicated entirely, but I think there's a lot more that we could do to try to minimize that undue influence. Last question. Can you give us an update? You know, we talked, I think, a year and a half ago already. It's time really flies. Can you give us an update on where your legal battles stand, both against the you know, UC vaccine mandates and your lawsuit against the CDC and Department of Homeland Security, alleging that they censored information during the pandemic? Yeah. So my case against the University of California looks like I'm not going to prevail in that case. So I was challenging their vaccine mandate on equal protection grounds under the 14th Amendment on behalf of people that had natural immunity. The courts have not accepted my argument that there's a constitutional right at stake. And if there's not a constitutional right at stake, they apply the lowest level of scrutiny to the university's policy, which is called a rational basis review, which really means you can't get, 
you can't get into the science of natural immunity. You can't get into the science of vaccine immunity. Basically, all the university has to show is that they had a plausible public health justification for enacting that policy. They don't have to show that the policy was narrowly tailored uh, to avoid capturing people unnecessary that it didn't, you know, it didn't need. Uh, they don't have to show that the policy achieved its public health purpose. They don't have to show that the benefits of the policy outweighed the risks. All they have to say is that we had a plausible public health reason for this policy. And the court basically says, look, Cariotti has his science, and we sort of have to accept it at face value. The university has their science and their experts that they're citing, and we have to kind of accept it. We're not going to get into that debate. We're just we're just going to rule basically on more or less on procedural grounds. So, so that was disappointing. I think there is a constitutional right at stake when informed consent is violated in this way. But the courts right now seem very reluctant to get into any fact-finding issues when it comes to public health and COVID policies. So we could appeal up to the Supreme Court, but I'm not inclined right now, given kind of the, the way that the court has handled previous COVID policy cases, to do that. On the plus side, my other lawsuit, the Missouri v. Biden case, where I'm one of several private plaintiffs in that case, is actually going quite well. So this is a case where we're alleging that the federal government, several agencies within the federal government are colluding and pressuring social media companies to censor uh, the online speech, particularly in relation to COVID, but now we're discovering in relation to other social and political issues as well. The, the judge recently dismissed the government's motion to dismiss the case. And so that was a 77-page ruling that had some very important things in it. First of all, the court found that all of the plaintiffs, both Missouri and Louisiana, the two states involved in the case, and the private plaintiffs, myself, Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Koldorf, Health Freedom Louisiana, which is a nonprofit private plaintiff in the, in the case, all of us have standing to bring the case. So there's been some other cases challenging government censorship where the courts found that the plaintiffs didn't have standing. So we got over that legal hurdle. The government made several arguments related to what's called sovereign immunity, that they, you know, they, they, they can't be held liable in the ways that we're accusing them of for various legal technical reasons. And the court basically said, no, the constitution is the highest law of the land and it applies to federal officials. You're not, exempt, you're not exempt from that rule of law. So the case is going to move to trial. We have submitted a motion for a preliminary injunction, which would be basically asking the court on the merits of the arguments presented in writing our, our complaints and our declarations, asking the court to basically step in and halt the government's involvement with social media while the case is being heard. That's a big ask. That's basically asking the court to, to kind of step in and and make a provisional ruling before the case even goes to trial. So it wouldn't surprise me if the court doesn't grant that preliminary injunction. But I, I think we've presented compelling evidence that the government does need to step in. This case could take a very long time to sort out. And in the meantime, if this censorship regime that involves at least seven different federal agencies is allowed to continue, then more damage and more censorship would occur in the meantime. So. I'm optimistic that that case is going to begin chipping away at the what Michael Schellenberger recently in his congressional testimony called the censorship industrial complex. And the Twitter files and the, the work of Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger and other journalists to unpack and uncover the kind of anatomy of this regime, all of that is coinciding with the evidence that we're gaining on discovery of how this thing is working at the federal level. And I think we're starting to see growing public awareness of the undue influence of government on social media censorship. And this could turn out to be the biggest free speech case of our generation. That might sound grandiose. And of course, you wanna think that something you're involved in is going to be a very big deal. But the reason I, I think that is if you look at free speech and censorship cases of the past, they usually had to do with one government official or one publisher engaging in a few acts of censorship against one individual or you know a small collection of 
information. But what we have here, if what we're alleging is true, and if the court sides in our favor, we're dealing with millions of examples of censorship, and we're dealing with dozens and dozens of federal officials who were involved. So just the breadth and the scope of the censorship, because this is operating in the digital world rather than just print publications, you know, as would have happened 20, 30 years ago, the, the reach of the censorship mechanism enabled by these technologies is far beyond anything that we've ever dealt with in the past when it comes to censorship violations and First Amendment free speech issues. And that's one of the reasons I think this, that this case is so important is that we really haven't wrapped our head around the way in which government censorship can operate using these novel technologies. And I think the law is trying to catch up to technology and to catch up to the, the, the use of algorithms of you know AI and the ability to flag content and just the sheer volume of content that would be involved in this kind of censorship operation. So, so yeah, we'll see what happens with Missouri v. Biden, but so far it's looking good. And I, I really hope that, that the American people take an interest in this problem because, you know, if the government can control the flow of information and can control what we say, then this, you know, little experiment in American democracy is, uh, is more or less over as far as I can tell. Good luck. On that note, Dr. Aaron Cariotti, thanks so much for taking thanks, the time sir. today. Great conversation. Appreciate Likewise. it. Likewise. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.